Welcome back to Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. This episode contains the second half of our coverage of the Adam Warlock story from Strange Tales number 181, 1,000 Clowns. We aren't going to waste too much time before we get to that. I'm going to replay the synopsis for this issue, just in case you have forgotten what happened, and then play a promo for another awesome podcast. After that, we're going to get right back into the conversation between myself and my Adam Warlock co-host, Mr. John M. Wilson, on Strange Tales number 181. Strange Tales number 181, 1,000 Clowns. Written, penciled, and colored by Jim Starlin. Inked by Al Milgram. Lettered by Tom Orszewski. Edited by Len Wein. Cover art by Jim Starlin and Alan Lee Weiss. Cover dated August 1975. And the on-sale date was May 27th, 1975, with a cover price of 25 cents. The cover features a clown in a tuxedo and what looks like a purple hulk with a nondescript face, just eyes and a mouth, standing over Adam Warlock, who is laying down and clutching his head like he is in agony. The clown's telling him, I warned you, Warlock, there is no escape from the madness monster. The purple guy's the madness monster. We'll get to him. This issue starts with Adam in a bizarre dimension that looks like it was designed by Steve Ditko for an issue of Doctor Strange. The story is also dedicated to Steve Ditko, so that makes sense. Adam is not sure where he is, so he takes a page to recap the events of the past few issues to see if that helps. It doesn't help, and then Adam is confronted by several clowns. Yes, clowns, who welcome him to the land of the way it is. The head clown, Lens Teen, is his tour guide. He explains to Adam that he had been sick, but their doctors had made him well, and now Adam can see things as they really are. Lens first introduces Adam to Jan Hatrumi. Jan is responsible for making sure everyone appears socially acceptable. He paints a clown face onto Adam so that he will look like everyone else. Adam, of course, wipes it off because he won't lie about what he is. Back on Homeworld, Pip and his new green-skinned lady friend take a Black Knight captive to get info on where Adam is. Pip has a gun on him, but the Black Knight is terrified of the sight of the Green Woman. He tells her what she wants to know, that Adam is being held in the pit, where they recondition people, and she lets him run away. She then introduces herself to Pip. She is Gamora, the deadliest woman in the galaxy. Back in Dicko Land, Lens shows Adam a clown on a cross and two other clowns throwing pies at him. The one on the cross is a renegade clown who tried to buck the system. He was starting to think that people were more important than things. Adam simply takes the pies and smashes them into the faces of the clowns who were throwing them. We can then see the control room for the pit and the real, though still alien, face of Lens and his assistants. They are trying to reprogram Adam as part of the matriarch's orders. We can see Adam is really wearing a VR helmet, and everything he sees is what they are programming into his head. They are trying to convert him to believe in the Universal Church of Truth. However, Adam's will is so strong, he is subverting the programming and not seeing the church members as heroes, but clowns. While the matriarch is amused by this, she still wants results. Or else. She wants Adam to be not just loyal to the church, but to her specifically. In the VR world, Lens tries another tactic with Adam. He shows him the great works that the church does, but all Adam sees are clowns hauling garbage to make huge towers, and when the towers topple, they start over, and over, and over, because that's what they do. Inspecting the garbage, Adam finds a few diamonds. Lens tells him that they keep occasionally showing up in the garbage. They aren't sure why, but that's probably why the towers keep on falling. This is when Adam begins to lose it and starts laughing. Diamonds accidentally getting the way of the garbage. He demands to be told the way out. But the only way out is through the doorway of madness. 
Lens brings him to the doorway, and when Adam enters, he is attacked by the madness monster. The purple guy from the cover. Adam tries to use his soul gem on it, to no effect. He comes to find out it does not work because the madness monster does not have a soul. He is just part of a soul. Adam's soul, in fact. He is the dark part of Adam. Adam realizes it is just another point of view, and a part of himself, and accepts it. In accepting the madness monster, he is able to free himself from the VR world, just as Pip and Gamora, who have been fighting their way through the palace, were about to free him. Adam now can understand the Magus a bit, because in accepting the madness monster, he went a bit insane. He hopes this will enable him to have an edge on the Magus, but the voice of the Magus tells him it might instead be what the Magus wanted all along. At this point, Adam realizes the Magus is not the big floating head he had been dealing with so far. That was just for show, but now it's time for the true Magus to reveal himself. And he does. He also reveals that things have progressed enough that Warlock has lost. There is nothing he can do now to stop himself from becoming the Magus. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have I'm now grown. moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at Two True Freaks. Okay, so um, this is this is the uh, Adam Warlock and Poop podcast. Yes, yes. Welcome to her scatological podcast. <laughs> Not to be confused with the eschatological podcast. They're talking about Bible prophecy. <laughs> Depends on your point of view, right? Um, okay, so then we move on to Wolfman and Ween abusing Roy Thomas. Yes. Oh, one other thing I noticed in this book, and I don't remember seeing the other ones. He does this several times. I don't know if it's an artistic thing or if he's running out of room, but the top of this page, when we go back to the clowns, it's a big panel covering the whole top tier of the page. And the the, the uh, caption box says, meanwhile, back at Fantasyland. But it's not a caption box on top. It's on the side. So the letters are written down almost like a crossword puzzle style. It could just be an artistic choice. Like I said, he does. He likes to do things differently just for doing things differently. Yeah, because he does that at least once or twice more in this issue. To the mm-hmm. point where like, I noticed it as opposed to remembering noticing it from before. Right. So I just wanted to comment since we were right there. Yeah. But yeah, so we have a clown on a uh, cross. <laughs> yeah, Warlock's like, hey, I know that. I can relate. Relatable content here. Exactly. And the other ones are throwing pies at him, and I think those other two are supposed to be Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. Yes. Which means he views one of them as built. The one with the short sleeves. Yeah, and I don't know their personal appearances. Yeah, that guy's uh, kind of jacked up. The one with the mustache and glasses, I did just see Len Wein in a, um, an interview. I watched the the new expanded version of the Focus Marvel Comics Chris Claremont's X-Men documentary. Oh, yeah, I needed to see that. Yeah, there's a, there's a new extended, expanded version of that that's available for, for online um, purchase, and I just watched that. I'd never seen the original version, and so when I went to go watch it, because I've recently finished reading his X-Men run, I wanted to get... I, I saw there was a expanded version out there. So anyways, Len Wein is in that, and... Um, Pretty sure that glasses, mustache, alien at the bottom 
is Len Wein. I don't know how that relates to the clowns. And they could just be, I mean, the clown appearances don't really have anything to do with the personal appearances. So it could just be, you know, some clowns are strongmen. Oh, that's true. And he views them as the strongmen. Yeah. Yeah, they get the metaphor, too. Very true. Very true. But yeah, so they're throwing pies at another clown who actually doesn't, you don't see him in clown makeup. I mean, he's mostly covered by pie. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you actually get his actual face because that's Roy Thomas. Yes, on the because, cross. Yeah, because he viewed Roy Thomas as the only one who was willing to go for creativity and right creator rights. The others he viewed were just corporate shills. Which is interesting because of all of the names, Roy Thomas is the one that's closest to Stan Lee as far as. History with the company, roles he played in, in in running things. I mean, Roy Thomas was Stanley Jr. in a lot of ways for a while. Yeah. So it's interesting that he's the one that has taken more sympathetic role in Starlin's eyes. Yeah, but it's not just that. It was also about the creator, right? So maybe once Roy became in charge... He was able to do things like that. Maybe he maybe he saw Roy's mostly the only one going for the rights as opposed to the other stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, because according to that same thing we had read, you know, the comic resources saying, uh, let's see, Starlin seemed to believe that Lee and Romita were basically company men, and that Lean Wolfman followed their lead. He seemed to believe that only Thomas really stood for creator rights, and he had been driven out of the EIC role. So it doesn't say they're creativity or originality he's talking it just says specifically their creed or rights oh and he had been driven out of the eic role i forgot about that part yeah okay i did not realize that had happened either now granted this is like what a third or fourth hand thing i'm reading beer basically but it says he seemed to believe he was for that and been driven out i don't know if it means he even was driven out or if it just starlin viewed it as being driven out mm-hmm. you know i i can't say for certain because i don't know enough about that to know whether or not that is what happened or not. We weren't there, kids. No. And I need to read more of the stuff from that time about that, because that stuff's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I've read Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, but there's so much in there that I don't remember the details of that particular part. So he's the one being punished. And it's almost like Starlin's writing a little conversation between himself and Roy Thomas with himself as, you know, Adam Warlock. Mm-hmm. As Roy says, I tried. I played the game as long as I could. Just couldn't take it any longer. But you wouldn't understand. And as Adam, a.k.a. Jim Starlin, says, then again, maybe I would. Because he's so sympathetic. Yeah. And then Adam grabs the pies and slams it into the other two's faces and knocks them out. <laughs> <laughs> because of course he does. So if you ever wanted to see Adam Warlock in a pie fight, here there you, you go. go. And at that the, point, the, then... The, the Infinity Pies. Ooh. <laughs> That's a what the issue right there. Right. Because <laughs> they can mix it with, like, Infinity, whatever they want to do, and Hostess Pies. Hostess Pies, Cream Pies, Pecan, pecan Pies. Mmm, creamy filling. All right. Um, um, so then the Matriarch shows up. And she's been wanting them to pro- reprogram him. That's the whole reason he's down here is because whenever the um, the trial went the way it did, which evidently was pre-planned, 
it was it was it was it was a ploy to get him unconscious so that she could then take him down here and get him reprogrammed so that he can then be part of doing her bidding so that she can take control of him so that she can have power over the magus so that she can have more power in the uh present day Yes. So all of this is a big old play for the matriarch as a power grab. Yes, although as we were talking about last time, it's interesting with that because of the whole secular thing of this since he's more like supposed to become the Magus and then the Magus eventually would at some way go back in time obviously to start the church. And the thing of course is, is that why, I think we mentioned one of us mentioned last time, is that why she's the matriarch? Because she succeeded and that's why the Magus made her the matriarch. Oh, I don't actually remember that point being made. That's interesting. Well, it helps when you listen to the edit when you listen to that last night as you're editing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was one of the things one of us, I think maybe me, maybe one of the two of us. But yeah, it was talked about is that maybe the end result is yes, she wins, he becomes the Magus, and eventually when he gets back to this timeline, he makes her the matriarch because he gives her all the power except for the one he, what, except for, you know, right under him. She's the number so two. So she wants more power than she got by winning. Yeah, but she may or may not, for all she knows, she may be just trying to get the power she has. Uh, well, yeah, but yeah, but still, the power she has is not sufficient for her tastes. Oh, yeah, no, so she, she wants, wants more. more power than she has, but in doing so, she succeeds in giving herself the power that she has. Potentially. Yeah, that's that's a cool way of looking at it. That's a cool... Um, uh, I tend to prefer holistic time travel stories where it's kind of the way things were all along, but you didn't realize it type mm. of stuff. And I say that- I tend to prefer... I yeah. have seen stories like that that I like. I actually like all kinds of time travel stories as long as it's entertaining and, and, and suspenseful. Oh, yeah. I always um, like time travel. It's always fun. But, yeah, that's that would kind of go along with that. If, like, you know, if she wins, of course, if that's the end of the story that she wins and he becomes a magus, that's one way it could have been done is that all this happened because that's how just how it went. Hmm. Wheels within wheels. So we finally see what's actually been going on all the time, that Warlock has a VR helmet on. He's a virtual virtual reality helmet. He's being manipulated. He's just in a big old room. He's in the danger room with a VR helmet on his head. Yeah, yeah. And um, to make him view everything. Warlock becomes our religion's greatest zealot. He would take anything you say as the church's head as absolute truth. He'd be your eternal slave. Unfortunately, we're not doing that well at succeeding. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're having some issues here. <laughs> He's viewing us as, instead of seeing us as heroes guiding him to a new life, we're clowns to him. And I and love I, the fact that she is so amused that over the next two pages, as she's either talking to him or soliloquizing to herself, she keeps going back to clowns and chuckling. Which is another one of those things I feel like was possibly part of a conversation that, like, that just feels like somebody's like, <laughs> that's great. Um,. But if you look at what she's saying here about Warlock, it is very much, again, like Marvel's voice. She's kind of summing up Marvel's public image and her efforts to get Warlock to work for Marvel. It's pretty obvious to me that you're pushing this from the wrong angle. You're not dealing with a weakling, Stan. This man will be threatened into doing what's right. Convince Warlock it would be harder to stand with us than against us. The fool is easily taken in by a challenge. Explain the projects we're working on. Show him the good he can do by joining us. Portray us as the poor, struggling underdog against the cosmic giant anarchy. Succeed in this and he's ours. And yet Marvel was always, at least in this, the, through the Bronze Age, I don't know how much beyond the Bronze Age, 
But in a lot of the Bronze Age, especially in the Silver Age, Marvel was portraying themselves as, as the underdog of the comics industry. Now, you know, to be fair, the, they were. We, we're, we're the smart man's comics, but not a lot of you are reading us yet. Those of you who are, we always love your support. Keep it coming. Yeah. Now, to be fair, though, the, especially in the early 60s, they obviously were a bit of the underdog since – yeah. You know, DC was in charge of their distribution and said you could only have eight titles. So, yes, in the very, I mean, to be fair, in the beginning, they were the underdog. But they, they kept that up. Like, that was, that was their image. That was even, the, the... even when they were becoming more of a competitor to DC or even not just competitor, but competitor for number one spot. Mm hmm. Or beating them at number one spot. But they used that line so much, they, they, had, they had fine-tuned it into a well-groomed self-image. Yeah, that was the company line. Tell tell him, you know, show him that we're doing good. Show him that it's harder to go against us. That's just all kinds of getting the guy to toe the line strategy. And it, it, it feels very corporate speak. I can see that. And then we get a little bit of her chatting to herself, doing her soliloquy. She's monologuing. She's basically <laughs> telling us her plans. Yeah. Because actually her plan right now is... Actually, specifically, it's that she wants to enslave Warlock to make the Magus give her more power. Mm-hmm. Basically, by saying, I'll just tell Warlock to kill himself, and then what do you think about that? <laughs> but she knows, and here she does actually acknowledge, she knows that, look, if that, the problem with that threat is if I go through with it, <laughs> I might have nothing. So she is definitely willing to gamble everything. Everything. Pretty crazy. And like I said, I do love the fact that we have like what one, two, three of these panels. She goes back to clowns. <laughs> it just—it's a nice little. To me, it's a nice little humanizing moment. She's not just this manipulative, power-hungry person who is willing to have anyone die and whatever for her own power. She is, but she does at least have like you know she has a bit of a sense of humor too. Even though like you know you might say something to her, she might still order your death, but she'll laugh at the funny thing you said for at least a few hours. <laughs> That's the kind of executioner that I want. He may have taken my head, but at least he laughed at my freaking jokes. Exactly. She's like, you were good. I mean, you're going to die now, but you're good. And speaking of that, by the way, so obviously, it's interesting. So the Universal Church of Truth then doesn't obviously kill every dissident. Because otherwise they wouldn't have this, I'm assuming they wouldn't have this reconditioning chamber. Right. I'm assuming that would probably be used for the more high-profile dissidents to try and get them to go, no, I was wrong. It reminds me of some of the um, stuff I've been reading in Star Wars lately from some of the new canon. Because one of the things, that, and I don't know if this ever got emphasis, emphasized in earlier versions of Star Wars fiction because I didn't I haven't read them. But one of the things that gets emphasized a lot in modern Star Wars fiction is what it's like to be in the Empire, both as a member of the Imperial forces and as... Um, a member of a planet that's been subjugated, like both sides of that culture get a lot of treatment in order to have something like the empire work. You have to make everybody toe the line. If they don't, there are other recourses before you just execute them. Hmm. You've got to have some way to try to convince people to, to come into the fold before you just kill them. Otherwise, you won't, you won't have people to work for you. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of the uh, movie version of V for Vendetta. I have neither read nor seen that. 
I've seen it. I've, I've started reading it, but that was a long time ago. I got distracted. I have it. I have the whole series. I, have to, I just have to actually sit down and put that in my reading projects and read it. But it's yes. very similar in the movie, at least. Yeah. Similar stuff is done that way. Again, now we go back to Gamora and Pip, because we're still out. At least we're not going back to you know, running into the palace to save them. And apparently Pip still doesn't care about going to uh, his death. But I guess Pip's bored. <laughs> or he's checking her out. Because as they're running there, she says, still coming? He says, right behind you. Yeah. And it's Pip the Troll. So anyone else I would not... You know, Adam Warlock said that. I would not think twice. Pip the Troll says that. I'm like, yeah, what's he doing? And that becomes more explicit as we go along, if I recall correctly. His lust for Gamora becomes like a recurring joke. Yeah, well, she's a person. Yeah. So it's anyone. I think I think they show that Pip's lust is pretty much for most things. Yeah. Whatever's out there. Because he's a troll. He's a troll. And so we're now back into the madness world. So Len's teen is trying to show Adam what they're doing. He's taking the matriarch's advice. And, and see, this is kind of a little bit weird. Because this is not appealing at all. Like, let's go show him the good things we're doing. And we go look at their projects and this appalling dung heap of the most unimaginable refuse, which I bungled the Grinch line. But, you know, you get the idea. Um, yeah. This is, this is not something that you go to show someone, hey, look, this is awesome. Well, remember, this is all viewed because of Adam's will. It's mixed in. You know, the VR thing is being screwed up because of Adam's will. I don't think they're meant to show, you know, just like they're not meant to look like clowns to him. It's not meant to look like what it is, which is what it is, is that we see clowns making wheelbarrowing in piles of garbage and making these giant mountains of garbage. Okay, so it goes back to the, whole the idea thing. that Warlock, a.k.a. Starlin, can see through the lies and can see how things really are. Yeah, he actually is seeing the way of things that, you know, as they are, as far as Starlin's concerned, of course. Or in this case, in the story, as far as Warlock's concerned, he is seeing the thing, way things are, not what they're trying to convince him they are. And what he sees is these clowns making mountains, pot, mount, making these mountain piles of garbage, which eventually, wait, I like this. I don't believe it. They're building a giant tower of trash, but it's a great tower of trash. <laughs> it's our tower of trash. Why? Why? Because that is what they've always done and always will. And then eventually the towers get too tall, and they topple, and they kill a bunch of clowns. And what happens is they start over again. Now, I wasn't sure exactly what that particular element was supposed to be metaphor for. If I were seeing this comic today, I would think it was relaunches and renumberings and all that jazz. Well, it is th- that, that's part of it. But here's the, here's the line. Tomorrow, they'll begin rebuilding the tower. The day after tomorrow, the tower will collapse once again. Life is a cycle, Adam. You always end up just where you started, no further. Oh, so no matter how many changes they do to a character, how many interesting things they, interesting things they might... They've got to go uh, back to status quo. They've got to go back to status quo. You know, it's like no matter what, when you do this, oh, look, look and say, you know, what, no, wrong S word, superior Spider-Man. Oh, my God, Dr. Doctor, Doctor Spider-Man, Peter Parker is dead. Yeah, he'll be back. Oh, my right. God, um, somebody else is Captain America, you know? Somebody else is Thor. 
Yeah, they'll be back because if that is true, Eric Masterson would have been Thor, and um, John John Walker would have been Captain America. <laughs> right. You know, and they weren't, which is why I laugh when people freak out about those things. It's like, yeah, no, no, they've done that plenty of times. <laughs> if that if that was the case forever, then when Falcon took over or when Bucky took over as Cap, he would have been taken over from John Walker. <laughs> Jane would have taken over from Eric Masterson. And Rhodey would have been Iron Man for the last 25 years. It's interesting that he's doing this in May 1975. Because Giant Size X-Men is either just happened or is just about to happen. It has happened because it's actually on one of the little notes on the bottom. They're talking about the X-Men fighting Count Nefaria. Okay. Oh, okay. So we're actually in the X-Men bi-monthly at this point. We're month. at 94 or 95 at this month. All right. So... Because once Chris Claremont takes on the book and he gets settled in, what he does in the 80s is he basically takes the strategy of, you know, this is an ongoing saga in people's lives and people's lives grow and change. And it only makes sense that a team will alter and grow and change over time. And somebody who reads the comics in 1985 shouldn't expect to see the same X-Men in 1990. Like, that that wouldn't make sense in a real situation. And so he, the reason the X-Men go through so many changes and there's so little status quo in the 80s is because it was intentional. He didn't want there to be a status quo. He thought that was unrealistic. So yeah. it's interesting that this, is, that this exact thing is being talked about here in 1975, just as Claremont is getting his start. Yeah. Now, I have to wonder if that's more towards maybe either some of the solo characters or even more towards the mean, the more established things that, like, let's say DC. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he might not be talking about just Marvel, but all comics, like, or at least Com- all mainstream comics, because that would obviously be more true for Superman or Batman at this point or Wonder Woman than. Because, I mean, Marvel still was, I mean, early, this is still not too far away from when Marvel was changing stuff. I mean, I believe you read Spider-Man. Spidey goes through a lot of changes early on. I mean, he's a high school student, and then he graduates high school like three years in. He's on high school, for, which has always made me laugh that everyone always used the right way for Spider-Man to be is in high school. I'm like, so you've only read Spider-Man, at least before Ultimate Spider-Man came out. It's like, right. so you've only read Spider-Man up to like 1965? <laughs> because you for the most part... Of- he was never in high school. <laughs> a lot of those dynamics are a decade in the past at this point. Yeah. But like Spider-Man point, is very stagnant by well, this point. I mean, but, Jerry sure. Conway is doing some interesting stuff with him, but I mean, the one the one thing that is big in Spider-Man's life from Ditko leaving until I don't know, the 80s is that Gwen Stacy dies. True. I mean, he do, well, he does have some other things. Doesn't he eventually finish college, go to graduate school, and then drop out of graduate school? So there is some change. I mean, it's more... That's... It's a slower... I, it's almost like you can watch them progressing with that, or regressing, depending on how you want to view it. You know, Marvel starts off, and they're viewing this as almost real time. Their lives go on. The years pass quickly for them early on, and then, like, as you're getting more and more into the late 60s, early 70s, it's like Marvel time starts establishing itself, and now it starts stretching more and more. Like, well, yeah, Peter's been in college for eight years now, our time, but really, it's only been about two and a half years for him. Yeah, when they start out, they're 
in a lot of ways they're doing calendar time. And even through the 70s, when they talk about past events, they tie them to the dates that they happened. It's just like, for whatever unspoken reason, the characters are not aging with the past. Time is passing, but the characters just aren't aging with it. Yeah, because in um, our la- one of the last episodes we I put out, the one I did of covering Avengers 135 with Jason, when the Vision goes back in time to see his origin, it's in 1967, September, or mm-hmm. 68, I forget which year it was, in September. Because I'm pretty sure if I looked it up, that was the cover date. Right. So they give the actual year. Now, I know in some – I read some Bronze Age DC. They actually st- say something in one of those issues about how they age slower there. Like they make a reference that I think it in might In the story have, or in the, like, the letter column? In the story. It was like an editor's box or something, I believe. I, I'm not 100% certain. I want to say it's Justice League of America 144, which is an issue that showcases the secret origin, so to speak, of the Justice League. It takes place before Brave and the Bold 28. It was like an alien thing going on, and like every character who existed at the time was involved. So you have not just the people who are in the Justice League, except for Green Lantern, because at that point, when in publication history, they said in like 1959, he wasn't Green Lantern yet. But you have Rex the Wonder Dog, and the Challengers of the Unknown, and Kong Gorilla, and they all end up breaking off into like several teams. And I think it's like they end up finding they end up finding Martian Manhunter. I think he's involved. It's involving him, and the team that finds him is the team that basically ends up becoming the Justice League. Interesting. And they talk, and I'm pretty sure they say something in there about how yes, they you know they 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 age slower than we do. That's why they're still young, even though this is late 70s, and this was like 20 years, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, because you have to come up with some sort of explanation why time is going by. And people are not getting older. Which is a little frustrating. It's like, but what do you mean why they're not aging? Like, I would almost prefer what we said Marvel did, which is kind of like reference a year and not really say anything about how old they are. Just ignore it completely. And, you know, know, if they kept to that strategy, they could still use it today. That could just be be the way things are. Yeah. yeah. The years go by, but the characters aren't really changing with them. Maybe that's what he's talking about then, actually. Because it wasn't something, you know, this is when Marvel was more starting to do that. I mean, yes... Like we said, Spider-Man did eventually graduate, you know, college and go to graduate school and then drop out. But the change was getting slower and slower and slower to happen. Yeah, because those things that you mentioned, I mean, Peter Parker going to high school and graduating in 28 issues is a very big difference from Peter going to college, going to graduate school, dropping out of graduate school over the space of a decade. Yeah. So maybe this is when it was more happened. This is when it was more happening and maybe even maybe it was even becoming more established. Maybe it was even becoming more of less a unspoken rule and more of an spoken rule, perhaps. Right. And th- that that was what he was talking about there. Where it's like now now we're doing this. It's like you know we used to do all these great changes and now we're kind of we can't do anything different. But I thought that was our point. The one element of the scene we haven't talked about though is that Adam Warlock in a toppled pile of garbage finds thiamite. Uh, a, a rock of thiamite, which is the strongest and most beautiful substance known throughout the galaxy. The, the zoom-in looks like um, a diamond with like infinitely more refraction of light inside than normal diamonds. And he says, what's this doing in the garbage heap? And, st- and L- Len's team says, oh, that stuff, we just can't seem to keep it out of our refuse. Someone keeps putting it in while we're not looking. I suspect that's why the tower keeps collapsing. So, the good stories, the, the gems of creativity are accidental 
to the company rather than intentional. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're intentional on the writer's part. Obviously they're intentional on the creator's part. But from the company point of view, that stuff just happens every now and then. It's it's not part of their intent. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it does or doesn't happen. We don't care. Right. Just as long as stuff happens. And um, he says the only way to exit this this world is through the doorway of madness. And I was trying to think if this is continuing the metaphor of being working for Marvel. And some of the descriptions of this seem to indicate going over to DC. Even like the fact that there's a soulless monster on the other side of the door. Hmm. Um, I didn't think about that. I thought this was just him segueing in then to the part of the story that's more necessary for the story he's telling. Right. And we do, we we definitely are leaving behind strict metaphor because not everything he says applies to that. But I, what I did think about that as, as as, what could the doorway be? And some of the stuff that he says would seem to apply. Yeah. But first we get Gamora and Pip inside the castle taking on some black knights. And um Black Knights or just more aliens? Not sure. Because the Black Knights were like Different outfits. I, These might be just palace guards, maybe? Yeah, I think that these look like the same whatever outfit Lens Teen is a part of. These are just more of those guys. So, and actually, yeah, because it looks like one of them is dropping paper and has a clipboard. Yep. So, paper pushers. Yeah. So these are just the guys who work there. Um, okay. Do you know where I'm going to ask you about in panel three on that page? Um. If you know what he's referencing. Hold on. I'm just reading it here. This is more fun than brown eyeing. Yeah. No. Is that a reference to what I think it is? I'm gonna go to Urban Dictionary now and look at brown eyeing because I have no well, idea. I don't know. What brown, I don't know. I mean, tell me if brown eyeing is up there. I know what brown eye is. Hold on. Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Turn it off if um, your kid, turn up the show if your kids are around people. Wow. Um So brown eye is basically butt. Right. And turning it into a verb I can only assume is butt stuff. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking about you're talking about butt stuff. And he's like, Well rest-, Gamora says, Restrain that overly enthusiastic attitude, maggot. Yeah. Um Wow. This is more fun than butt stuff. <laughs> it reminds me of whenever Godfrey read The Shades of Grey. Oh my god. My inner goddess has stopped dancing and is staring too, open mouthed and drooling slightly. As depraved as we are led to believe Pip is, but since they had to actually put out a comic book, I'm sure that. If Pip were actually re, uh, rendered the way he actually is supposed to be, he would not be nearly as sympathetic a character. God, no. God, no. Pip would be a horrible disp- – Pip is somebody you do not leave alone with anyone who's not capable of murdering him. Right. Anyone with an orifice, we're not going to leave this guy alone with. Yeah. I was about to say your kids, but I'm like, no, not your kids. Your, your 
significant no not just a significant number of other you like unless you have weapons <laughs> you know Gamora yes Gamora can take care of herself Adam Warlock right. yes yes but since since it's a comic book you know he occasionally makes lewd jokes and is generally the clown but yeah he would not be nearly as um, endearing if this were actually a able to do everything they could with them. It kind of reminds me of um, Greek mythology, and not just Greek mythology, but some of the realities behind it, like the Dinosian cult, Dinosius, the god of the wine. You kind of, like, if you just hear about it a bit, you might think of, like, especially as a guy, like, oh, all these people getting together, it's an orgy, and it's great, and we get drunk. But the reality of it wasn't, or at least the reality in the myth was, like, they were, like, traveling, like, almost like mad people, and, like, it was kind of more like the Reavers from Firefly, you know, uh, they'll rape you, kill you, and eat you, and not necessarily in that order. Okay, so we're going to move on now. Okay, this is getting very dark. I don't like that. <laughs> um, so we go back to Adam, and he goes through the door of madness. And there's the, the madness monster, which is a soulless monster. Yes. Oh, and speaking of the madness door, it does have those little, uh, more, more like the theater master we were talking about, the comedy and tragedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, less like the traditional look and more like Ninja Turtles. Yes. Um, Ooh, good one. I didn't, see, I didn't really think about that. Just the general shape of the head. Yeah, no, but you're right. It is. I mean, obviously, it's pre-Ninja Turtles. And I call the Madness Monster soulless because Warlock actually tries to use his gem, use his gem on him intentionally, and he can't. It's uh, the, the guy's unaffected. Because the Madness Monster tells him, I don't have a soul. I don't have my own. I'm a part of a soul. This is, again, of course, Jim Starlin's uh, definite way of he likes doing his things of having your inner demons fight you physically. It's interesting this is the the, uh, the black section of his soul that created the Magus, so this is the part of him that, you know, theoretically is eventually going to take over, and it's purple. Yeah, that is purple. And this is the first, this issue is the first time we see the Magus as being purple, so I'm sure that was an intentional connection that just hadn't been done before. Oh, I didn't think about that. I, that's so blatant, obvious in front of me. I didn't even noticed that. Yeah, they're both purple, and they fight. And um, eventually, Warlock. What? No, no. They save and they unplug the helmet. Well, they were about to actually, but it looks like he broke it on his own. Oh yeah, we were about to unplug you, but it appears you've saved us the trouble. And the helmet is falling off of his head, very much like Pip's gun did earlier. Yeah, because Adam has accepted the madness monster, and I guess no one has ever done that. Right. He's accepted his own issues. His own role in the craziness, which is basically Starlin saying, you know, despite all this, I'm still part of the industry. I'm still part of still part of the madness. Yeah. Which still making ex- comics, even though this is the way things are. Yeah, as Warlock says, you see, I had to surrender myself to madness. What I mean is, well... I'm now quite insane. Uh, does, does the fact that he's insane now go anywhere in later issues? Because I don't remember that being a part of the plot. I forget. It might be one of those things that he says and then doesn't really do anything with. Uh, at best, I think it might just be one of those things that they use just to explain why Adam is so different. Because mm-hmm. he is crazy. Because he's actually insane. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't, from what I remember, it doesn't really seem to change his behavior. So we get to where he actually gets to meet the Magus. We get the giant green and fluorescent yellow head that we saw before. 
Yeah, the Wizard of Oz deception, as the Magus actually puts it. Yeah, and he goes to the door, and we actually see... Now, this is the Magus in all his Afro glory, which I thought was rather amusing, because the first Magus that I saw was Ponytail Magus from Infinity War. Yes, really short Ponytail Magus. Yeah, where it was just pulled back. And the idea of him having an Afro in his original look... I thought was amusing because, of course, anything that looks different from what you're used to is... is Weird. Right. But here he is. He is dressed in a purple version of Adam Warlock's original costume. The one with the Shazam lightning bolt. Right. And I am the true Magus. Now, I don't think, other than the color scheme, I don't see a lot of difference between this look and his look in the Wizard of Oz style head. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, just the color. They're not that different, so why F, why why use use that as a disguise? I don't know. Maybe just to make him think the Magus was more powerful, because if you have this giant floating head type thing, that's different than a physical person you can punch. Right. Probably it's because Jim Starlin had the idea for this look after the fact. Yeah. Weird that it works as well as it does, because I mean it's all one color for the most part. Mm-hmm. Except for well, the costume's purple and silver, the same way Adam's was red and gold. But the thing is, Adam's costume, the red, you know, the purple replaces the red. So Adam's costume, at least, you know, since Adam's skin is gold, you know, gold, there wasn't too much overlap with that. There's definitely more visual difference between red and gold than there is between deeper purple and lavender, because it's basically. The Magus is purple and purple with silver highlights. Yeah. So it's bizarre. It works as well as it does. Yeah. Because it, it, I think it's a cool look. And um, like I said, when I first saw this was in the context of Infinity War, which is a book full of doppelgangers. Yes. And so, I don't know. I don't know where I was going to go with that. Just the idea that, that he's kind of a doppelganger of Adam Warlock. Oh, yeah. Well, he is. That's the whole point of that. Now, yeah. I have to wonder if... I'm trying to remember, did they deepen the purple of the costume in the future? I think they do that. I think when he comes back, when they use him in Infinity War, his costume is a much deeper purple, so there's a much more pronounced difference than there is here. At this point, he says, my plans require to stand it up till now. I need to keep you off balance, uncertain. Otherwise, you might have been able to alter my past. But since Warlock has now embraced his own insanity... Since he has now incorporated the madness monster into himself and accepted it as part of himself, his journey toward becoming the Magus is assured. Yeah, this it's is what I needed. Yeah Warlock, yeah, Warlock took that into his hope that he would have some way of combating Magnus. Understanding him meant he could anticipate him. Mm-hmm. Instead, the Magus is telling him, nope, that's actually what I needed to become. So thank you for making sure I was, was going to be born. Yeah, his strategy wasn't too different from the matriarch strategy, bringing this in to to, to better have a better hold on the Magus. But no, there's nothing you can do to change what's about to occur next. The madness in the house of the Magus, and um, this is where we come to the end of the Strange Tales run, because next issue will be Warlock number nine. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about how Warlock and just 
the the way the series was produced is kind of the bronze ageiest bronze age story that ever bronze aged. <laughs> okay. He's created by one care uh, person, but then actually used more by other people. He has a series that starts in Marvel Premiere, which is the Bronze Age tryout book, and then he gets his own book, which was sort of the goal of the tryout characters that succeeded. But then that book gets canceled, and so the creators take the plot threads of that book and finish it up in a title that they're also writing, which was a very common Bronze Age trope. They yes. character arcs go from their main series and finish up in some other series. In case anyone forgets, we're talking about Incredible Hulk 176 to 178. Right, and then the same thing happens again. So you have Strange Tales brings Warlock back as a tryout book, and he eventually gets his own series again, and then that gets create, uh, canceled because the creator walks off of Marvel. So it's just all this stuff that were typical tropes that happened in various and sundry places, but like are all happening to Warlock. True. The end result being that you cannot, you cannot get Warlock 1 through 15 and read that and understand jack shit. Because it doesn't work that way. Because, yeah, because Warlock 1 and 2 follows the Marvel premiere, like you said. Yeah. And then if you go from 8 to 9, that makes no sense because that goes actually, like you said, 8 to the Hulk issues to the Strange Tale. And to the, through cancellation and to Strange Tales. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then back to 9 on. And then you, and then again, after 15, you have those four, uh, yeah, the three or four places those characters appear. If you want to include mm-hmm. Thanos, because Thanos, remember, has that backup story in Logan's run number 6. Right, which I forget if it's Starlight or not, but yeah, either way, there's a there's that there's the Marvel team up issue, and then of course the two annuals that end everything. So it's just it's just kind of crazy trying to read Adam Warlock, and I was looking because they have sales on Adam Warlock on Comicsology every now and then, and I'm just seeing how they have his appearances cataloged, and how they have like the families of titles grouped, and. Um, I wish I worked for Comixology because I would go in and clean up their Adam Warlock stuff because this is not organized well. You know what? Uh, Since I have most of that already, or at least those ones, I never even bothered looking. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of messed up, and a, an Adam Warlock newbie would be hard pressed to decipher it just by um, the way they have it organized there. But anyways, so Strange Tales um, then goes on to become. I believe a Doctor Strange reprint book. I'm pretty sure, yes. Yeah, Doctor Strange reprint book until issue from 182 until 188. Yeah. And then Doctor Strange gets his own series, which which I think is back to original stories at that point. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm looking at ComicBookDB. So Strange Tales 188 reprints Strange Tales 140 and 141. And it says, uh, uh, no, 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 I don't think, no, Doctor, that's right, Doctor Strange now, I think at this point, gets his title, gets his own book with an, un, with a new number one. Yeah, yeah and it's not, it's, it's, it's new fiction now, it's not reprints. Yeah, Doctor Strange actually has his own book now at this point with number one. And I think all of that was trying to play off of his popularity in The Defenders. Yeah, that's right. Because no, when he's in The Defenders, he doesn't have his own title. Makes sense. At least, you know, for the first couple years. 
that's right. That, that was in between. That's a, that's why when his uh, book his book got canceled when they did the weird numbering thing, or when they started yeah, doing and, the weird and, numbering in the weird blue mask thing that actually turns out to be not Doctor Strange. Yeah. And that's all. I haven't read enough of that to know exactly how all that plays out. I just know that in the back of what is it, Marvel feature that has the opening of the Defenders. I believe you know, so. The backup story where Doctor Strange fights Blue Mask Doctor Strange. Yeah, it wasn't him. And I didn't really understand exactly why that was because I hadn't read Doctor Strange. The cool thing when doing a podcast is seeing that other people are apparently enjoying your show enough that they are sharing that they are listening to the show on social media, and that's pretty awesome. So I'd like to thank the people who helped out by sharing the last episode, episode 78, The Trial of the Watcher, on social media. On Twitter, the people who liked and retweeted the posts about that episode were Long Box of Darkness, Rolled Spine Podcasts, Limelink, Sasha Semek, Paul Showens, Jason Snick Venable, Christian and Damon's Amazing Nerd Show, Luke Giaconetti, GeekPod, Lost in Time, J. Jones Goldstein, ITG Blogcast, Siskoid, Noel Deal, Avarandin Mathie, Tuck, John Turley, Ariel Celestino, Alex's Comic Rant, Shooting Breezes, John M. Wilson is Podcasting Again, and The Kirby Cast. On Facebook, it was liked and shared by Joe Sedano, Roderick Castle III, Jesse Starcher, GeekPod, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Pat Sampson, Mike Peacock, Gene Hendricks, Joe Crawford, Michael Allen Carlisle, Guntam Shioran, Derek William Crabb, and Dan Ostroff. And on Facebook, talking a little bit on the post for that episode with Jesse Starcher, who hosts the Source Material Comics podcast. We had recently met each other and started talking. And on that post for that episode, he said, Coincidentally, we just recorded an episode on the Trial of Galactus shortly after I heard this. Of course, Trial of the Watcher, Trial of Galactus, Trial of Phoenix. These cosmic types cannot stay out of trouble. Anyway. If you would like to help the show and promote it, or you know what, if you just want your ego stroked and you want me to say your name on the show, that's okay. I get it. I understand. It's cool. I'm fine with your re- whatever your reasons are for doing it. So here's the different social media ways you can find us. On Facebook, just go in the search box, type in Adam Warlock, Thanos will pop up pretty high up there. On Twitter, at AdamThanosPod. Tumblr. Our Tumblr page is there. I put up a post most days. Majority of days. Resurrections at warlock.tumblr.com. Send us an email. It's been a while since I got an email. I would read it here. Resurrections podcast at yahoo.com. And of course, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Been a while since I got one of those. I would definitely read that on the show. We're now up to the Friends and Enemies segment of the show. In case you forgot what that is, what we do here is we take the cover date of the issue we were covering this episode, August 1975. And then we take a look at all the other series we've covered on the show and we see where they were at in August of 1975. So to start off, we have The Avengers number 138, Stranger in a Strange Man, by Steve Englehart, George Tuska, and Vince Coletta. While the Wasp is taken to the hospital, the rest of the Avengers chase after the Stranger. But everything is not as it first appears. And look at the cover for this one, it's kind of a weird team. Facing off against a stranger, we have Thor, Iron Man, The Beast, Yellow Jacket, and Moondragon. I like these weird Avengers teams when they pop up every once in a while, so I'm really curious. I'm gonna, I have to check this one out. Next is Daredevil number 124, In the Coils of the Copperhead, by Lemween, Marv Wolfman, Gene Colan, and Klaus Janssen. Black Widow leaves Matt to operate on her own again while Copperhead stalks the streets. 
And yeah, it looks like the era of the title being called Daredevil and the Black Widow is over. It now just says Daredevil, the man without fear. Natasha still does appear on the cover box, but it just has a little caption that says co-starring the deadly Black Widow. And on the cover, Daredevil's facing off against, I guess, his copperhead. But I kind of expect him to be having a snake-themed costume. He's wearing a trench coat and fedora and has on what looks like a gold mask that kind of resembles... If anyone remembers the big man from old Spider-Man comics, looks like a golden version of that. Weird. Fantastic Four number 161, All the World Wars at Once, by Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler, and Joe Sinnott. An angry Johnny Storm visits the fifth dimension only to find that it is under attack by robotic invaders. On a parallel Earth, Ben faces an incursion of dinosaurs and warriors from bygone times. Well, the cover does give us the the Thing versus Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, it doesn't look like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It looks more like Godzilla with bigger teeth. But they say on the cover it's a Tyrannosaurus, so I have to assume that's what it is. But it doesn't really give indication of parallel Earths or the fifth dimension. But since I'm pretty sure that fifth dimension thing comes from an old Strange Cell story, eh, who cares? But for more on this issue, you should listen to The Fantastic Cast, episode 208. The Incredible Hulk, number 190, The Man Who Came Down on a Rainbow by Lem Wein, Herb Trimp, and Marie Severin. A mysterious man riding a rainbow appears before the Hulk and offers him a chance at paradise. When the Hulk arrives, he is greeted by an old friend and an old love. But will an old enemy destroy the Hulk's own personal paradise? On the cover, the Hulk is fighting the Toad Men from issue 2 of his series. Now, if that's the old enemy, then I'm not really sure he has much to worry about. Toad Men are kind of lame. Iron Man number 77, I Cry Revenge, by Mac Friedrich, Arvel Jones, and Chick Stone. Iron Man faces the Mad Thinker and Yellow Claw, and then uses the Golden Globe to track the Black Llama and Firebrand to Black Llama's home dimension. On the cover, we see that it looks like this is the era where Iron Man had a nose on his costume. And I love that, because it looks so bizarre. And apparently, this is part of the War of the Supervillains story, and kind of want to see that because these aren't really the biggest supervillains. I mean, the biggest one is Mad Thinker. Then probably Firebrand and then, you know, Yellowclaw and Black Llama, really. So, I never even, I have no idea what the Black Llama even looks like. I don't think I've ever even read anything with him. So, it could either be really lame or they could do some cool stuff and kill some of these villains, even. Marvel Premiere number 23, featuring Iron Fist. The name is Warhawk. By Chris Claremont, Pat Broderick, and Bob McLeod. McLeod? McLeod? I think it's McLeod. I'm going with that. Unless somebody knows I'm wrong, in which case, please tell me. But also tell me how to do it right. Just saying I'm wrong is not going to help. Now that his quest for revenge is over, Danny Rand looks towards the future. While walking in Central Park, Colleen and Danny encounter Warhawk, a dangerous Vietnam vet suffering from delusions. Warhawk's violent tendencies put Iron Fist on high alert especially when Warhawk abducts Colleen, believing her to be his wife. I remember Warhawk, although I didn't know he first appeared in an Iron Fist story. I remember him from a fill-in issue of X-Men. Pretty sure Claremont did not write. So that's kind of weird, since it looks like Claremont created him. So it explains why he was used in X-Men, but not why it wasn't Claremont writing it. Anyway, moving on to our last issue. Thor number 238, Night of the Troll, by Jerry Conway, John Buscema, and Joe Sinnott. Thor has surrendered to Yuluk to save the life of Jane Foster and is taken below the earth. 
How will Thor and Jane overcome an angry group of trolls? Well, I'm not really sure because the cover doesn't give any indication except for Thor and Yulik fighting on a raft with a sea serpent about to attack. Honestly, of all the covers from I've seen this month, this is kind of the least exciting. Even though it has Thor and Yulik fighting with a sea serpent about to attack them, it, I don't know, it's just something about it doesn't really grab me. Oh well. This show can now be found on Stitcher. In case you don't know what Stitcher is, Stitcher is Radio On Demand, a free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discovered from 20,000 others. Available on iOS, Android, Nook, and iPad. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books, I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Longbox, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www. Viewsfromthelongbox.com. So yeah, that was a possibly the most infamous issue of Warlock in the entire seventies run. It stays experimental. It stays interesting. And we're going to have Thanos show up, and things are going to get really cool, but. The 1,000 Clowns issue kind of stands out in history, sort of in the same vein as Spawn number 10. Oh, yes, that's right. I mean, I like this a lot more than Spawn number 10. But yeah, they're kind of they're kind of doing similar types of things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Spawn number 10 is the one where the uh, creator, creator issue, all the other characters are owned by, like, slaves, they're saying. Owned by their, you know, companies. Right. Which, and they use they use Doomsday as like this big emblematic example of creators not having rights on their characters, and that's just so much bullshit because that is not what Doomsday stood for from a creative or story or people who are writing this comics any of that kind of example. Well, and the funny thing also is that they're talking about in that issue. By the way, I remember them talking of Cerebus. I think it is was mm-hmm. talking to Spawn saying, you know, your luck, you know, your creator hasn't abandoned you. But I'm thinking. 
is McFarland writing or drawing Spawn at all anymore? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because at least there's Cerebus... also the retro. There's also the retrospective on that issue. Yeah, from from nowadays. Yeah, because at least Cerebus, you could say Dave Sim always wrote Cerebus. Dave Sim can say that. You know, I mean, whether you want to agree with him or not, Dave Sim can take that perspective. You know, right. he can take that stance because he can say, "Yes, here's my character, Cerebus Cerebrook, and I wrote number, drew number one, and." Well, yes, at some point because of you know health issues and time, I did have some people helping me with like some of the art and background. But yeah, that was all me up until the end. And you have things like Neil Gaiman and Angela. That yeah, their his conflict with Todd McFarlane is exactly the same conflict that Todd McFarlane is saying he's the champion of from the other perspective early in his career. But like Todd McFarlane wouldn't let Gaiman have any anyway. Anyway, it's just there. There's a lot of retrospective irony to Spawn number 10. Yeah, I thought about that before. I found that funny. But like, In addition like, to the problems that Spawn 10 has from a contemporary point of view. Yes. I mean, obviously, at the time of Spawn number 10, yeah, he still was doing it all for the most part, except for those four issues that he had some other people doing. Right. <laughs> except for 8, 9, 10, and 11, where somebody else wrote it. Irony. But, um, but anyways. But yeah, but that goes back to what we had said originally about this whole d- debate over that, where there's like that kind of line between, or the viewpoint, this is our company, we have to make this work, we need to make sure that this product is still available, and wanting to do the, the other side of wanting to do the complete creative freedom of whatever you want. And it just, you know, usually the best things, at least for a corporate, you know, when, when you have these corporate-owned characters, the best thing is usually where it meets somewhere in the middle, as opposed to just being one perspective or the other, kind of like comics themselves. It shouldn't be just an art book. And it shouldn't be just, here's a picture, and then I'm going to write, like, 5,000 things over it. It's supposed to be a melding of the two. Should be. Yeah. But that is the end of Strange Tales. I don't even know if we're ever going to cover Strange Tales again in this podcast. Well, it ends pretty quickly. Well, I mean, any title called Strange Tales, because I don't remember if, when they bring Strange Tales back the once or twice they do, I don't know if that ever will have anything to do with Adam Warlock or... In, you know, Thanos or Infinity, whatever. Yeah, there's a Strange Tales... No, I think it tells the suspense. I was going to say there's a Strange Tales one-shot, but that's a Tales of Suspense one-shot. Um, well, because they do bring it back as the uh, Doctor Strange Cloak and Dagger book later on. Yeah, it runs in 1987 as Strange Tales... Yeah, as Doctor Strange and Cloak and Dagger. Um, but Adam Warlock's not running during that time. There's one issue in 94. There's a 1998 couple of issues it is never an ongoing again during a time that adam warlock has a title okay because i was just wondering i knew like i I remember there being at least some like dr strange and or cloak and dagger crossover stuff with some of the infinity stuff i just wasn't sure if it was after they got their own books i think but i think it was after yeah and cloak and dagger doesn't have their own book during all that Cloak and Dagger's book is over before Adam Strange comes, before, yeah, Adam Warlock comes back. All right. Um, I'm looking at a Strange Tales three-issue thing that ran in 2009 under Marvel Knights, and it was like a 48-page anthology of short stories that, you know... <laughs> we need to keep up the copyright. If you remember, when we get to 2009, it's there, but it's it's not... A series. It's a three issues of anthology short stories. We need to continue this copy, keep this copyright up. And hey, do we have some inventory stories we could throw in there? Awesome. <laughs> so that's it. And there, unfortunately, there's no letter page. 
I was hoping for letters. I was hoping to see what people thought about like the first at issue. So there's no no letters page. That is sad. Yeah, I mean there is the bullpen bulletins, which we're not going to go into full thing. We don't need to do that. Go listen to Fantastic Ass. They'll tell you about it. <laughs> They'll read the whole thing. But the one thing oh, I do want to talk about from the bullpen bulletins is they're talking about the 1974 Shazam Awards. And in that what one, what did they say about that? Well, they list all the people up for them. I'm not going to go through all of them. There's a lot of it. But one thing they have here is uh, let's see. Outstanding new talent. No, wait, that no wrong one. Oh, here we go. Superior achievement by an individual, and the nominees are Barry Smith, which it's really weird to see it not called Barry Windsor Smith. Mm-hmm. Roy Thomas and Jim Starlin. Wow. So I'm assuming now he's up for the Captain Marvel stuff. Yeah, because that would have been the previous year, right? Yeah. There hasn't been enough uh, Warlock. But yeah, that Captain Marvel stuff. I mean, y'all have talked about it. It was it was really really cool. But this has not been running enough, long enough to have an influence on that. Award. No, because this is just what it started. And yeah, anyway, I mean, maybe started, an issue. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, this stuff for the most part is pretty much in seventy coming out, not just cover date, but physical dates in seventy five. If those are the seventy four awards, they have to be for either stuff you know for stuff that I assume they came out in seventy four. It would not at all have been the inspiration for him to get the award. But when the awards were given, there might have been an issue or so of it out by then that people could have read. Yeah. Um, just as, oh, as we give this award, he's back on a bug. Exactly. Here's more reason why he deserves it. But he didn't win. Roy Thomas won. And he would not win in 75 for this because there were, it doesn't look like there were Shazam Awards from 75. They only went from 70 to 74. I'm going to put a link in for the Academy of Comic Book Arts because that's who does the Shazam Award. That's interesting in its own. They're supposed to be the comic book version of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, like the, you know, doing basically their comic version of the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. It only lasted for a few years, and it ended up evolving into an advocacy organization focused on creator rights. The Shazam Awards? Yeah, that, well, the Shazam Awards were given by the Academy of Comic Book Arts. Okay. And so it's the Academy that changed. Didn't they morph into the Eisner Awards? Uh, it doesn't say here, granted I'm using Wikipedia, but it doesn't say here about it morphing into the Eisner Awards. Because I actually briefly flirted with the idea of doing an Eisner Award podcast. Interesting. Um, and just going through the Eisner winner comics and talking about those. And I got some sort of indication that came from the Shazam. Oh, the Eisner Awards and Harvey Awards both conferred in 1988 in response to the discontinuation of the Kirby Awards. In 19, and the Kirby Awards, okay, they were not they were not a morphing from Shazam, but since the Shazam Awards ceased in 1975, ten years later, someone's like, "Hey, let's do that same sort of thing again," and they start the Jack Kirby Comics Industry Awards. Yeah, because these come out from the idea of the fact that the the Alley Awards, which were in the 60s, because mm-hmm. even it says okay. here, it says uh, the ACBA was the first in a string of largely unsuccessful comic industry organizations that includes the Comic Book Creators Guild, 1978 to 1979, the Comic Book Professionals Association, 1992 to 1994, and comic, and comic artists, retailers, and publishers, which, which the uh, initials spell CARP, <laughs> from 1998. I don't know about that. It sounds fishy. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, it says, the long-running exception had been the publisher's group, the Comic Magazine Association of America, CMAA, 
founded in 1954 and lasting through 2011, which was who gave out the uh, comic code. Uh, okay. So ironically enough, they, funny enough, they were the ones that lasted. But everything else, when they try to get like these groups together like that, always seemed to fall apart. Because basically, it was supposed to be that it rotated like who was in charge. Like Stan Lee was president the first year, and I think it said Dick Giordano was president the next year. And Neil Adams was president at the end, and that's kind of when it devolved into creator rights things. They, they would even say at some point here – wait, where is it? Okay, so it says, Historian John B. Cook writes – when, when While the ACBA was established as a self-congratulatory organization focused on banquets and awards, it quickly served as a soapbox for the angry young men in the industry, primarily Neil Adams, Archie Goodwin, and their ilk of educated, informed, and gutsy artisan writers, self-confident and filled with a strong sense of self-worth, attitudes sadly absent from the field for decades. Jeff Roven recalled, I can't tell you how many times Martin Goodman would listen to some of the things Neil Adams was saying and mutter, who the hell does he think he is? Wow. So, and, and then it said basically that it kind of ended up in almost as like a people basically hanging out in the old Adams apartment, like once, you know, the first Friday of a month. Because I think it said once they got the thing of artwork being returned, it kind of fell apart. The whole organization kind of fell apart. Like once that goal was reached, it was like, all right, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Well, that award of Starlin, um, or at least the nomination of Starlin for Superior Achievement by an Individual, which we're talking about, but yes. Starlin's nomination was from the last year of the Shazams. Yes. That's why he's going to uh, win 75 for this, because there were none. And it's worth pointing out that he did win. He tied with Walt Simonson the previous year for Outstanding New Talent, with Klaus Jansen getting also nominated. Oh, so, I didn't even think to um, look for the previous one. I looked at the current. I did a search for Starlet on the article, and it came up twice. But yeah, so this was the last year, and then we're not going to have any awards like this for 10 more years. And that's when the Eisners start – no, I'm no, sorry. That's when the Kirbys start up. They last for three years, and the Eisners follow in their footsteps. But anyways, so all that is 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 Starlin. Yes, that's where – that's where Starlin – and I'll put a link in for this thing I saw about the Academy of Comic Book Arts because I got to say there's more in this because that whole thing on its own would be a fascinating story to look at for read. Anyway, so that was the book. All right. Well, thank you for your help with this. I do appreciate Yeah, and I'm sorry your comic is your, – your laptop is, is giving you grief. Is it still doing that diagnostic screen? It did that. And then eventually you want to stop and went to another page saying, we're having trouble fixing the issue. Here's your options. And one of the options was just go directly to Windows. So I clicked that one. And apparently that was the wrong button to click because it just started the whole process over. So now I got to wait till it starts. So it goes through the whole process and then figure out what else I can do. All right. Well, best of hopes. Let's hope it works out. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later, man. All right. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.